Okay, sounds good. All right, are we rolling? Okay, welcome to Both Sides of the Coin, the podcast from CDN Publishing. I'm John Feigenbaum, publisher here at CDN, and I'm joined today by Patrick Ian Perez and Josh McMorrow Hernandez. Guys, what's up? It's been more than a minute since we last got together, uh, especially here in the office as we tend to uh, work for m- remotely, and it's wonderful to have you guys around. Absolutely, yeah. Like I said, it's, um, we're very fortunate that we can do what we do, but it is really positive to be in the office, and I think collectively we'll, we're extremely productive when we are together. Um, but because it's been such a long time, there's been a ton of things happening, right, in the numismatic world um, that Absolutely. we're going to delve into. But one thing uh, that I've been kind of following, and I'm sure many of you who are listening to this today and watching it today uh, have heard about it, especially if you're a currency collector, and that is the, I guess, cease of operations is what we've been calling it, of PCGS currency, which is, you know, the grading service, the certification service, which has been a huge deal. It's kind of left a lot of people in limbo for those who had notes there. Um, but what, what's been occupying my thought is how it affects the overall confidence of collectors, right? Correct. What, you know, you, re- you, you, know, you rely on a, a company to grade the notes, which impacts its market value, which ultimately, that's kind of what we do things for, you know, is what things are worth. And so it'll be really interesting to see going forward what Collector's Universe, the parent, co- the parent company, does with this property that they have kind of taken back. Right. So it's going to be very interesting. That's a good point, because I've spoken with Mark Salzberg, who's the chairman at NGC, or uh, Collect- Certified Collectibles Group, which is the parent company of PMG, and really the premier grading service for currency, and now undisputed, because there's really no competitor that, that matches. And uh, Mark's biggest concern has been, you know, uh, obviously it's, it's, it's going to be a boon for PMG, but they were already uh, extremely busy. So now he's right. just worried about, you know, how does this affect people's perceptions about collecting currency in general? Exactly. And uh, I, I share his concern too, as you do you. So it will be interesting. And uh, it was a rather sudden uh, p- pulling of the plug, uh, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think sudden is, yeah, that, that, that was the most um, dramatic aspect of it. And so it, this will be something we're going to be following the entire year. Yeah, it'll see, be interesting. To see what happens. So. Things change. Yeah. There's a lot of things change. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How about you, Josh? I've been doing great. You know, like, uh, like you guys have said, I mean, yes, we work very well remotely, but it's always great to be back in the office. I'm from Florida, and it was warmer down there than it's been here the last uh, few days. But, uh, you know, it's great to see it going into the spring now, busy time of the year for everybody, obviously, in the hobby. A lot of shows coming up. And uh, we've already had a couple of uh, big shows happen this first quarter as it's been, hasn't it been, Patrick? You know, fun show, and we just had the National Money Show. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and aside from what's going on in, in the dealer world, we're always super busy at CDN. So, John, you can kind of talk about a little bit about stuff that we have in the pipeline. Sure. as a Certainly. So what we've been focused on here at CDN behind the scenes has been dramatic and, and actually really exciting because... You know, it's been about three and a half years since I took over as the publisher, and a lot of the initial work had been to restore faith in the company, make sure, you know, the publications got out, and of course we've changed the publications dramatically from weeklies to this monthly magazine, and then uh, we've really entered a new phase of back-end software development, which has been tremendous, and uh, Patrick and I worked long and hard on these databases, these underlying databases for pricing coins and currency. We've added Chinese coins. Patrick's busy adding, uh, you're now adding um, 
currency, all kinds of arcane currency items that have never been priced online before. Uh, colonial currency is already online, and we were talking this morning about adding southern currency, uh, as it were, and then you know, the, the, the possibilities are absolutely endless, and we're, we're working on all fronts to make you know, dealer tools, you know, eventually they spill over to collector tools, but our focus here is for dealer tools like CDN Exchange to help dealers transact business to each other, to understand their values of their items, to bring as much data to a user as possible quickly so they can make good buying decisions. And we've probably added, since January 1st, I've taken a guess at about 40,000 prices uh, you know, yeah. to our We've been day busy, day. haven't we? Yeah, well, yeah. and it's, it's, never been, it's never been easier to head prices. Uh, you know, in the past it was very difficult, but now it's easy to do. It's still hard to do it right. And we, you know, we do our best to do it right. We get some, some bit of controversy there about getting sure. who right for one person is wrong for another. But it's our intention at CDN to, uh, to represent the current market values as effectively as possible. Right, and, and there's no substitute for data. Just, you know, as, the more data you can put in the hands of people, I think it's, that's, better, that's, that's, that's every industry, that's kind of what they're focused on. The better on. decisions people can make. We, we, we still always maintain, always maintain that CDN is not the only price you should use when you're making a buying decision. And, uh, you know, we hope it's an important one, but we also think that, you know, auction records and populations or, you know, any other data points you can use, historical values, are all relevant right. to your decision. And of course, on the modern side too, we were adding not just new issues, but uh, intermediate grades, CAC pricing for many series uh, across the gamut. We're, we're, we're covering it all, and we're still building our price uh, index. Right, right. And, and even and getting into varieties, too, which I think is something that is um, a lot of people are interested in, but very few people know how to price. Correct, correct. And so, you know, it's, we like to shed light in these new areas. It's fun for us then to price vehicles uh, for the, you know, 100th time, that it's fun to go into new areas and, and, and bring information where there hasn't been information before. I don't think anybody's ever priced, um, you know, Civil War paper money before in, in an effective manner. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how it gets priced and how the trends right. follow our pricing um, and so on. But one other thing I meant to uh, bring up earlier is that I went to Berlin for the World Money Fair at the end of January. Right. And that was a really interesting experience. So I wanted to discuss that for a moment because, you know, I wrote about that in our March issue. However, uh, it was a unique coin show from many perspectives, and Americans go to uh, U.S. coin shows, and we typically expect the same thing at every coin show. We expect X number of dealers showing up on folding t folded tables with glass cases on top, and you put your slabs or your raw coins in the case, and it's for sale. And, and the World Money Fair is completely different, although it has a section of rare coin dealers present. Generally, this is a show for the trade and suppliers to the trade. And when I say the trade, I mean the world mints. So I mean that the Canadian mint is there, the Austrian mint is present, and then there's the manufacturing facilities that have the machinery to help you produce the planchets, strike the coins, laser the dyes. I mean, they had you know, incredible machinery on display, lasering dyes from wax models. You had a guy at the show carving a wax model yeah. And then showing the, the lathe that traces his carving into etching it into a die. Wow. So, wow. so many uh, very high-level meetings at this show. I mean, really what you see is a lot of guys in suits sitting in the lobby, meeting and talking about, you know, seven-figure deals and nine-figure deals to produce these coins. And, and, the, and the quality and the intricate, intricate nature of the coins being produced today 
is bar none. Yeah. And so we were compelled to have some fun with it and feature the donut coin that uh, the Perth Mint is introducing as part of their Simpsons series. I love year. donuts, you know that guy. Well, you know, who doesn't like, who doesn't <laughs> enjoy, we know you like donuts. We've talked about that. Right. Um, uh, but, but you know, you know, it's interesting. It's especially interesting to me that the, uh, that the an Australian mint would would take an American product like the Simpsons and, and get there first, while the U.S. mint is following along with uh, a rather, you know, generic set of this, you know, items and and so on and lunar landings and you know, really I think I think uh, products that aren't quite up to the par of what's being produced elsewhere. Right. So uh, we hear good things from the U.S. mint in regards. They were attending at the show. I spoke with them, and they were inspired to. to by what they saw at the show, and so they're coming. They they swear they're coming along, and, and going to come up with better products. Uh, and we would like to see what that looks like. So, sure. um, but the, but you know, I encourage every dealer who can attend this Berlin Coin Show uh, every year. It's about the last week in January, and it's worth your time because you your eyes will be open that maybe it isn't all about you know circulated buffalo nickels or MS sixty five Morgan dollars that you can make a living on. There's there's more here. Right, and I think. There definitely needs to be somewhat of a mind shift in the sense of understanding the wider coin market because there's so many that are it's like some people have this for or against attitude like you you love classic coins and you hate moderns right, right, right. or you like you love mod, all the modern stuff and you you have no and I think it, you have to have you have to have an understanding of both or at least an awareness of both there's a market for both right and one can lead to the other and and you know it, it's I think there's, and I, I'll even admit I was kind of that way before too. But right. mm-hmm. you see something interesting, you're like, oh wow, you know, if someone likes it, let them buy it. You know, you know that that ship has sailed. If you if you um, if you refuse to acknowledge that there is an enormous part of the rare modern coin market, call it right uh, today, that is in you know contemporary issues by world mints. Right. You know, you're missing out on something very dramatic. And, um, you know, I don't know where that leaves the average American coin dealer, but I can tell you if you're a shop owner, right. these coins will sell faster than the V-nickels in your case. So we have to be aware of that. And we want everyone to succeed, whether whatever you sell, we want your shop to succeed. Absolutely. Yeah. If, you, if somebody comes in and they buy, you know, the Simpsons set of coins for their grandkids, you know, then they'll spend more time looking at your, at your Indian sense. But, you know, there's... There's a, there's a both. There's really not an exclusivity to it. Let's just make the hobby great. Right. And I would argue, too, there's some crossover appeal between, you know, just coin collectors versus those who like, say, The Simpsons, for example, yeah, or The Perth Mint with their gem and coin series. People who collect rocks would appreciate a coin like that. Yeah. So the modern series, I think, offer a lot of potential for coin dealers who want to expand their base. They can do so, have the opportunity to do so with modern coins. And it, brings, it can bring your whole family in. So your family may not be interested in Morgan Dollars, but right. could easily be interested in the coins that have gemstones in them embedded. I mean, Disney it's amazing. Whatever, I yeah. mean, the Polish Mint was, is making 3D coins. I've never seen anything. I don't even know how you would call it a coin. A 3D coin. It's, like it's, well, it's a three-dimensional object with Medusa's head spilling over the coin. Right. I mean, I don't know right. what it's you like call that. It's a sculpture that. almost. Right. It is a sculpture, and, yeah. it's, and it's amazing how they manufacture them because that is challenging. Right. And so that's, they have symposiums about the show and they discuss the complexities of the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. But it is, you know, it's a different realm. I don't know how you grade them. Right. <laughs> you know, the eighth tentacle is, uh, you know, yeah, is exactly. got, got cut off because, you know, it's got caught in the car door. 65 a <laughs> Right, right. But it is fun. It's interesting. And, um, you know, I think whatever, whichever way our hobby takes us, I think, you know, we're, we're wrong if we try to force it into a box that, that, you know, the market is, you know, looking in another direction. Right. And totally. I, I can assure you from this show, there is a lot more money 
in that direction than there is coming into the classic coin direction. Right, right, so. right, right. And so speaking of the market, uh, or the wider coin market, we've already had a lot of activity domestically here mm-hmm. um, with regards to United States coins. So obviously, as Josh mentioned, we started out with the fun show, and you know we were all there, and we would, I think we would characterize it as busy or robust yeah. as far as right. the business that was yeah. done. That was wholesale. a tremendous show. Um, a lot of people were happy with their with their results um, business wise. Um, some of the highlights from the auction: we had the 1885 proof trade dollar, which uh, for those that don't know, there's only five struck. This was the finest known, sold for 3.96 million, which um, I think was a solid result for sure. Um, I think it was right where we expected it to fall. Right. I think that's. I don't think we changed the price after the auction sold. Right. Exactly. Uh, closed. So. And as of today, it's still the most valuable coin sold this year or this calendar year. Yeah, so far, and it probably will stay that way. Kind of looking at some of the previews of collections that are coming to market later in this year, I think, I think that might be the topper for the year. Um, and at least at public auction. Publicly, yeah. Year. Yeah, um, now. Then shortly after fun, we had the Long Beach Expo, the first one of the year that always happens in January, and reports from that were a little bit slower uh, because it came pretty close on the heels, I think two weeks after fun. So that's kind of a hard turnaround for, for dealers to, to make and, and collectors. And then more recently, we had the Baltimore show, which to me was kind of like a black and white show where the divorce floor was slow. There wasn't much retail customers, but the auction, I think, was actually pretty decent, both coin and currency, which is conducted by Stax Bowers. And we should mention that the trade dollar was sold by Heritage, who conducts all the fun auctions. um, So Baltimore, so a couple things. Number one, uh, a colonial coin, a Massachusetts copper, sold for 90 grand, which is pretty decent and it it shows that it was a comprehensive collection and that market is very solid and I just use it as an example where there's collectors that are very dedicated and it's doesn't go way up it doesn't go way down but it's pretty solid over you know year in and year out and 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 I think that's a good example of a well-supported segment of the market Um, extremely difficult market to price Uh, in fact I would argue that it's probably the most difficult market to price from my standpoint because I would because not only, you know, the, the grading services are strict, um, and, but, you know, the standards, it's, the standards don't lend themselves for any particular coin to a specific grading standard because right. of striking issues, because of the uniqueness of different coins, and then the surface quality is different. I almost, almost feel like these uh, colonial coins should be graded the same way uh, NGC's grading ancient coins, where they, they sort of, they're, they're, they're marking a, a surface quality, a strike, and, yes. and multiple, in other words, a three-dimensional grade rather than a singular numeric grade yeah. is more, more, would be more appropriate Absolutely. for these things. I'm not sure if that's ever in the making, nor, you know, or am I really suggesting it, but it's, it's challenging. And we see, when we're looking at auction records, you know, you, know, you could see the same coin, you know, same grade, by uh, PCGS or NGC, uh, and every in every context similar, and one coin could sell for ninety thousand. Another example could sell for forty five thousand. Right. And an expert can tell you, oh, well, the, you know, this one was nothing like the other coin. Right. Right. And you know, I'm an expert numismatist, and I don't see much difference. Right. So it's it's a it's it is a thinner market, and it's a finicky market. Right. So right. so it is very difficult to peg levels in this area. For so a singular we've we've held off on expanding our catalog until we get a better sense of that, but right. but that's the reality of it. Right. And then there was also a paper money auction at Baltimore and it was the final part of the well known Anderson collection, part four. Mm-hmm. So the, the the collection is is totally sold as far as publicly. 
Uh, I think that there's some other stuff that they still have, but the the Court Anderson collection has been sold, and it realized a total of thirty four point one million, which for paper is pretty darn strong. And it was only, I think it was less than a, less than three hundred total notes, so it's mm-hmm. per average, very large. Hundred thousand dollars per note. Yeah, and so, um, <laughs> and so the uh, in the part four there was three notes that cracked a million bucks, which is pretty cool. The Marcy the famed Marcy note, eighteen ninety one thousand dollars silver cert. 1.92 million. Wow. I thought it would go for a little bit more. I, I thought it would be like 2-4-ish, but you know, no, I don't think too many people are going to complain about 1.92 million. And then two notes at 1.44 million each, both uh, from 1869 Legal Tender Series, the, you know, the Rainbow Series, which is well known, the 500 and the 1,000, both sold for the same amount. So, you know, nice to see that you know, three notes out of only 54 could break a million dollars. I think that was pretty encouraging. And I think most curious is if it's the same buyer for all three. Mm. I think there's a fair chance that it is. So We do know that all three notes have since been crossed over from yes. PCGS currency now to PMG. So exactly. that's a little bit of an indication, but right. maybe not. I don't right. know. Which was, a very, uh, which was a very interesting thing, and that happened shortly after PMG announced... The crossover, the new service crossover that service was triggered by right, which I thought that was a, a great idea. Why wouldn't why you know why not uh, right. offer this service to people with PCGS holder Makes notes? Makes sense. Um, and right, right, right. Because and and that's something you that you don't want to cut them out until you know. Obviously. Right. Well, and then the other thing though that people have brought up is that you know at NGC and PCGS on the coin side, you can go to the website and you can pop in the cert number, and it says this is what it is. Well, if you can't verify the certification number on a PCGS currency slab, who's to say they're not going to be counterfeited? Right. So that that's these slabs are easier to counterfeit. The slabs are easier to counterfeit than coins. Yeah. So it's um, it's an interesting deal. It is interesting. It is interesting. This is definitely a subject that we'll have to spend more time uh, talking about this this whole currency uh, PCGS currency uh, situation. Right. So. Now, I'm inclined to ask Patrick, of course, the Anderson sale being such a very important paper currency event in the last year, a couple of years. Yeah. How would you rank it in the last decade or two of paper currency sales? Because, I mean, we have yeah. Bitcoin sales, a Pogue sale, of course, Newman, but this is huge for the currency realm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, just off the top of my head, I think you'd have to go back quite a few years. In the early 90s, I think it was 94, Herman Halperin collection that was sold by Stax was very influential. Um, the collections in the 70s and 80s, um, Donlin, mm-hmm. the guy who wrote the original kind of paper money catalog. Sure. Well, I shouldn't say original, but him and Friedberg were kind of contemporaries. Um, his collection was very significant. Um, of course, the all-time greatest is Grinnell in the 40s. Um, and then... But the numbers were different. I mean, we're talking about like kind of like professional baseball in the 40s and professional baseball. The numbers were different, and and those today. collections were were like massive quantity. Right. Like they they wanted to get every Friedberg number, whereas Anderson was a, more of a type collector. So he just wanted the best example of each type. He didn't need every signature, every right. seal, every. Right. So definitely. Different I, guess, I guess the question I'm, I think I don't know if Josh is asking the same question, but what I keep wondering is. How, how did he do? So, so Joel yes. Anderson acquired many of these notes in the past 10, 15 years. I, I, knew, I knew Joel quite well, and, uh, and I know when he bought some of his notes, and I'm curious how he did. Well, I'm hesitant to put a percentage of it, but I have been tracking it over the four sales, and he definitely made money. Good. He's in a profit position. We 100%. like to hear that. The only, off the top of my head, the only handful of notes that he lost money on were notes that he bought like within since 2015 uh-huh. so within the last three four years which 
everyone knows, generally speaking, the hold time on a, something, on a rare piece is at least, you want to hold it at least right. seven to ten years. In the world of collectibles, almost anything that you acquire in a... In, in the last few years is not a good idea to put right back on the market. Precisely. Right. Gene uh, Gardner had done that with Pogue or Newman yep. coins. They were all great coins. He sold them quickly after, you know, after he acquired them and they didn't do well in the second round. But really, I would, I would think that most people uh, who bought in the second round could great have, done, have done really well because if they just hold for five or ten years, exactly. they're going to they're gonna kind of go back to the original value that they sold for at Newman rather than Gardner. Yes. And, and, and what's funny is that the stuff that you would think that he got the largest gains on were not. It's kind of the more obscure notes that have right. become much more in vogue that he just crushed it. Right. Which is almost to say that you can't cherry pick value in, in, no. a, in an interesting way. Just be a comprehensive collector and stick to your principles right. and you'll do fine. Right. That's, I think that's the key. Is right. Make just a plan. Make a plan. Stick to it. Be consistent in quality, whether whether it's five hundred or five hundred thousand, and don't overthink it. And yeah, if you if you like something and you buy it, if it's a little bit more than you should that you think you should pay, you probably it's worth it. It's it's not something to be overthought because in hindsight, dealers deals that I looked at in you know the late nineteen nineties, and I thought you know this is the most expensive dealer in the country. He has great stuff, but he's his prices are exorbitant. Those those coins today are incredible value. It's right. you know that it's that the. the Twenty percent that he was over market at that time, right. you know, is not significant to the fact that it was great material, you know. And when we when we price coins at CDN or currency, we're just using baseline values. We're not saying you know pay this number or don't buy it. We're just right. trying to That's give our readers an indication of somewhere to be. But if you love coins and you want and you collect coins, you know you should you should use it as a guideline and say you know. It's if not you gonna, like a piece. Overpaid. Right. It's not a big Especially, deal. Especially, you know, <laughs> rarity, you like. rarity and quality really cannot cannot be duplicated. So, uh, you know, if you pass on it, you may not get another one. Unless you're sent willing to say, there's 100 items I'd buy, and I'll take any one of them, so I want to be a real value buyer. I can tell you that the dealers that I knew, going back to the 90s, um, the ones that survive today are the ones that are were mo- more focused on quality than on price. Mm-hmm. If you're a price buyer as a dealer... You're still, you know, you end up with coins that are hard to sell. Great coins will sell themselves. You may have to hold them a little longer because you have to tell the story of why the value was greater than gray sheet bid or something. Right. But at the same time, you know, you'll still have a great item. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. Yeah. And in the first quarter, too, you know, being a Floridian and all that, I was at the fun show with you guys. And it was a busy board, so I spoke to the show coordinator. Why, why do Floridians brag about Florida in the winter? Is that? I don't know. Is it the hot weather? Is it the sunshine? Come back to me in August. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hot here in Florida. It's 95,000 degrees. But no, we're at the fun show, and it really was busy. I spoke to show coordinator Cindy Wibker. Um, some 10,000 people were there. Wow. And I say that because it's important to state the coin shows still attract people, especially, you know, when it's timed right and such, you know, and all that. Um, the 85 trade dollar was a huge, obviously, a headlining piece. Another headlining piece that did not make seven figures, but pulled six figures, in fact, was the 1943 bronze Lincoln cent, uh, NGC 53. Um, it was actually a discovery coin found by Don Lutz in his high school lunchroom chain, 1947, just sold for $204,000. It's being featured, actually, in the spring issue of CPG Guide. And as Lincoln cent guy, I mean, I have to say, I know that it's not the most valuable coin in the world, but it's one of those things that we all, who collect Lincoln sets, we all want, right. you know. And it does go back to saying, you know, buy quality, buy something that you like, 
hang on to it long enough as Lutz and his family did for 70 plus years and it will uh, it'll pay off. Well, I think I think coin shops around the country will tell you that nothing makes the phone ring more than stories about 1943 copper pennies. Right. It's the first tr- it's the first uh, <laughs> trick everyone knows, the match the match bo- the matchstick in a exactly. container to exactly. turn your zinc cent in the copper. Right. As right. a young guy growing up, heard about 43 bronze cent. I was about uh, 13, 14. I called my dealer thinking I'd found, you know, 43 bronze. It was, of course, you know, copper plated steel cent. Right. But it, it's good for the hobby to have those kinds of stores because we can all relate to finding that or hoping to find that, you know, that windfall in our pocket change. And I know that, you know, yes, you get a lot of false alarms, dealers, you know, phone calls that come in saying, oh, I found this link. But it's good that the public is at least aware of these rarities, is aware that coins are valuable, and can excite some people, because that's how you build our hobby. It's how you build the base. It's true. And it's important, you know, especially with Coinbit coming up uh, next month in April, that we promote the hobby in a way that everyone can relate to. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, yeah. It was actually pretty cool. The LA Times actually ran a story on the Marcy Note, the 1,000 silver certificate, and some of my family members who have no concept of numismatics texted me. They're like, oh, yeah, I saw this article in the Times. Do you know anything about that note? <laughs> so uh, when I, I took Do a, you know anything about that? Well, what's cool is that they said, you know, have you heard about this? So I texted them the picture of me holding it from last year's A&A. Nice. Because I took a picture of me holding it. Right. I said, look, guess what? I, I was holding that note. So it was fantastic. That was cool. Yeah, that is. And there are fines to be made also paper currency. I mean, aren't the Patrick? I mean, you know, if you, if you check through your currency enough, you'll find, you know, cuts Possibly. that are not correct or radar notes, you know, with the, the sure. palindromic uh, serial numbers and such. I mean... Yeah, possibly. There are things to yeah. find out if there, you, yeah. If you're a traveler, you have a better shot of finding foreign notes that no one knows about. Right. <laughs> That's the fun part. It's true. And, and world paper money is something we're very excited about here. Yeah. We think that's a, a big emerging market. Exactly. And speaking of oddities, you know, this month talking about, we always have our favorite website with the, yeah. uh, both sides of the coin. Today, I've got a website, uh, jimscoins.com. Now, I don't collect errors by trade per se, but I do enjoy looking for, you know, off-center coins and whatnot. And uh, Jim's Coins is a great website because it has a photographic uh, encyclopedia of different major kinds of errors, and it describes for you, you know, how to look for them and such. And uh, what's important as a collector, you know, a lot of times you get newbies who don't know a double die from a mechanical doubling issue. And as a collector and also as editor for years, I've gotten in my email, oh, is this a double die? No, I'm afraid not, mechanical doubling. And Jim's Coins actually shows you a picture of mechanical doubling, describes what it is, and along with broad strikes, off-center coins, cuds, all those things. And uh, so that's why I say jimscoins.com uh, forward slash error underscore coin underscore examples dot PHP is a great site to uh, check out because, again, if you don't know what error coins to look for out there or you want maybe a visual guide so you can look for things in pocket change that uh, look odd, you can at least go to this site and uh, see if your coin matches any of those photographs or descriptions and uh, maybe hit the jackpot. Who knows? Well, I think terminology is important. I, there's a, I think there's a fair amount of dealers that don't use the right terminology when speaking about errors, and that's always been kind of a frustration. You know, if, if someone comes to you and says, hey, has, and actually does find an error right. and who does nothing about it, as a professional coin dealer, you should be able to say, oh, this is a blank, you know, off-metal strike or brockage or whatever, and be able to explain how it happened. Because that's what, what the guy wants to know. Right. I mean, yeah, of course, he wants to know what it's worth. But it also, I think, would be nice if you could tell him, oh, yeah, this is how it happened. The coin went in here, and it did this, and that's how it sure. ended up as an error. So that's, that's, it sounds like a good resource. It's for a that. good resource. And again, we can't emphasize enough. The phrase is doubled die, not double die. We get that a lot. Okay. Sometimes readers, you know, I know at least in my name, I've gotten emails, it's doubled die, doubled die. That's my uh, 
pet peeve, I guess. Well, that's like it's like daylight saving versus daylight savings. Savings, plural, right? Yeah. But it's it's the saving. It's the saving of daylight, not the savings. So you're not putting it in your yeah. pocket. Right, you're not Multiple banking. Multiple daylights, right? <laughs> you know. Is, is, does anybody care about grammar anymore? I mean, does it even matter? Hey, I do. Does grammar matter? We have to keep it alive. Sorry, Josh. <laughs> you're the last. Keep grammar one. alive. Right. So listen, I think that's a good place for us to stop right there um, before we get too slap happy. Um, it wraps up another episode of Both Sides of the Coin. Uh, Patrick and Josh, it's been great to have you here for this episode and look forward to having you here over the next week or two. And, you know, there's a lot of buzz continuing in the marketplace. And when we get convened again shortly, there'll be even more. So stay tuned and we thank you for watching. <laughs>